and we will especially focus on um, verse 5. But while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. A voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. As we began looking at this uh, period of Christ's life, I've explained that a few times, this year of opposition that will culminate in his own kingdom and his own people and nation crucifying him at the hand of the Romans and the, the temple and the temple authorities officially rejecting him as a blasphemer and a liar and as one who was possessed by a demon. We've seen how Christ began to experience this opposition uh, in Galilee as he multiplied the bread and they tried to make him king and he refused and they responded very badly to that. And he went through a Gentile region multiplying bread and fish again, feeding a kind of half-breed uh, collection of Jews that were half Jew and half Gentile. They responded a bit better to him, but the scribes and the Pharisees followed him and demanded to see a sign that he was the Messiah. He refused to give the sign, which Christ always does when we demand of him signs and proof. And we put ourselves in the position of questioners, pushing at him in unbelief. Christ will not respond to that. He removes himself, as we saw. He questions the disciples about what they believe, and they confess that he is the Son of God. And he takes them further up a mountain. We saw that he went there to commune with his father because he loved his father and often withdrew to the wilderness to pray anyway. He did that regularly. But he went there especially because he began to change his message. That at this point, we're told in the Gospels, he began to tell them that he must suffer. Now he hid in that in many ways from them. But he began clearly at this point to test them. This large group of people has rejected the message. And he begins to test the disciples and say, well, what do you think? And he gave them clear teaching that he would suffer greatly and be cut off by God and all of these things. And he prayed on that mountain to consecrate himself, to dedicate himself to God. And he needed to do that. The pressure of what was coming to him was in opposition to him, it was a hindrance to him, and he would pray, as I said, as a man who relied on the Holy Spirit. That is how Christ lived. He lived in relationship to God by the Holy Spirit, just like we do. And he needed the strength of the Spirit to be able to set his face to Jerusalem as he was increasingly isolated, to go with the weight of the sins of the church upon him, and all of that agony to bear that weight and carry it all the way to Jerusalem and to pay for it. And he prayed through the night as the disciples fell asleep. He prayed through the night in the darkness to unload this burden and to intercede with his father and to receive strength from him. And we saw last week something remarkable happen. That God came as he prayed in the darkness, alone on that mountain with the three disciples asleep, that God came 
and responded to Christ at this important point of his ministry. And he came with revelations and communications to Christ that would encourage him and strengthen him all the way to the cross itself. And there are really three main encouragements that he gave them, and we saw two of them last week. We saw that he was transfigured, and we saw that Moses and Elijah appeared to him. The transfiguring of Christ was an encouragement to him, because he saw his own glory. As he prayed in the darkness, his appearance changed. The way Luke puts it is very interesting. It says, his face became other. That's what Luke says in the Greek. His face became other. In other words, it became like God. It became unhuman. A glory began to shine from his countenance and his body, from his person, and who he is as the Son of God, that, that took control of his body. And we're told by the Gospel writers, those who witnessed it, that even his clothes began to shine like lightning. That anything that touched him, just the glory poured out of him as he prayed. And he, he saw it, he became aware of it. The disciples asleep, and he saw this light, the light of God, the unapproachable light, and the glory that was hidden, that was shrouded in him as he lived as a carpenter and as a messiah and as a sacrifice. That glory was hid as he lived a life of humiliation and submission to God, a life like us, subject to the same weaknesses and hungers and tiredness that we have. But in that moment, the glory of his person came out and he, he tasted and saw something of what would be his once he died and was resurrected and when he ascended into glory to take his rightful place on the throne of the cosmos, the throne of heaven and the throne of hell. That he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he longed for that glory. And we saw at the end of John's Gospel how he prayed for it. Father, he said, when he left the upper room, after they sang that psalm, and they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Christ prayed, and the disciples heard this awesome prayer directly from the Son to the Father. Not a Christian prayer, but a prayer that's within the Trinity. If you want to know what conversation goes on in the Trinity, there it is. Father, glorify your Son with the glory I had with you before the world was. I have served you on earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, I come to you. That is the glory he wanted and knew that was his and that was rightfully his. And on this hill, in the night, he shines and sees it, and the mountain lights up. Perhaps people who were awake in the nearby villages saw some kind of light and wondered what it was. It was God, like he was at Sinai, coming to his son. And rather than like Moses, who saw a glory and it shone on his face, this glory shone out of Jesus, showing clearly, this is no prophet, this is no mere man, this is the Son of God. It encouraged Christ. Then he saw Moses and Elijah, and we saw, I don't need to repeat it, we saw why that encouraged him. He saw two visitors from glory from heaven. 
who who themselves had met God during their own lives. They had both gone up Mount Sinai themselves in times of difficulty to seek God, and God had revealed himself to Moses and Elijah. They knew what that was like. Moses knew what it was like to have two million people turn against him in the Exodus, and to ask for him to be stoned. God's messenger, we want to stone God's messenger, because they didn't like Moses' message. Moses can talk to Christ about this. Elijah defeated false prophets, but then there was a death penalty Christ put on him by the king and the queen. And he ran away in despondency, and he asked God to take away his life. And God came to meet him and showed him his glory. And Elijah didn't even die. He was taken straight to heaven. So there is Moses and Elijah. You can see why these two are so fitting and why God used them and sent them. And they walked through from the other world, the other realm, the parallel universe, where that universe works differently, but God moved them through from glory and they stepped for a few minutes back into this world glorified and perfected to encourage, as two prophets, to encourage the Son of God. And he saw in them the fruits and the result of what he would die on the cross for. For his death on the cross gives them this glory. It gives them forgiveness and justification. It gives them resurrection. So Christ looked and saw a down payment of something that he was going to pay on the cross. And he saw these examples, these test examples, uh, these uh, things that show him, this is what will become of your people when you die for them. He is obviously greatly encouraged by this. And we would think, seeing his own glory and seeing these two glorified Christians would fill his heart with strength and focus upon Golgotha. But these aren't the greatest encouragements, these two. The third one obviously transcends them and is greater than them. For in this encouragement, Moses and Elijah begin to depart. I'm not sure if that's in our passage, but Luke tells us that as they departed, Peter said, let them stay and we'll build three tents like they did in the Old Testament. And we'll make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, you can dwell in this tent like God did in, in glory, fill the tent with light, and we'll stay up here. We don't need to go back down. There doesn't need to be a cross. There doesn't need to be death. The glory is here. Let us make three tents that we may stay here. But obviously you know that was not Christ's will. And it's a foolish thing. We understand, Peter. It's a foolish thing to say. They, they're aware of this glory and they wake up and Peter just blurts the first thing out that he thinks of. But we're told that they're about to learn a great lesson, because as Moses and Elijah left, something, they left to make room for something else. And what they made room for was a greater glory than Moses and Elijah had. But as they left, and their shining dissipated, a great glory cloud appeared and approached the top of the mountain. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This isn't a rain cloud. They're calling it a cloud here because it looks like a cloud. But this is the same cloud that appeared in the Old Testament in the temple and on Mount Sinai. This is an appearance of the glory of the Trinity 
and the Father speaks from this cloud, but it's an appearance of light, that it isn't like light in this world, it's from another world, it's from God's essence, and the cloud comes because God's mysterious, he can't be seen, and it rests on the mountain, and we're told in Luke's account that they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 6 in our passage, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. The cloud came and Jesus obviously went into it, and the disciples went into it and they were terrified. And this is the appearance of his father. This transcends the other two. And it's not really the sight of the glory, which is a wonderful thing. It, as we have in our own relationships, it's not the sight of the person. It is good to see someone that you haven't seen for a long time. And the sight of their face, it connects with you when there is that reunion and it, it raises a joy and an expectation in your heart that you know what happens next. The instinct is to speak. And to say, it's good to see you. And I have missed you. And I want to express something to you, and it works both ways. The light is a blessing, but for Christ, it's the voice. It's the voice of his Father. And the Father speaks with authority and glory and unexpectedly, and he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the encouragement that Christ receives. And it's an encouragement of love. And let's see why the Father loves the Son in two ways. And then, for us, why we should look at it and live by its example and love the Son too. And these are, these are brief. I've, I've already opened out the passage a lot for you. These are brief points about love. Why does the Father love the Son? two reasons, and then thirdly, how should we respond in love uh, in that way? He calls him here my beloved son. My beloved son. This is the word in the New Testament for strong and deep and committed love. This is no mere emotion or passing affection or a feeling of niceness. This is the committed the love of the New Testament that is throughout the Gospels and that Paul speaks of. The Greek word agape. Agape. The divine committed saving love. An eternal firm union of love that doesn't stop. The same love that God actually gives to us in the Gospel. For God so loved the world. Or because of the great love which, which he has loved us he sent his son to die for our sins. This is the love that he, he describes the son as. He doesn't say this is the son. He says this is my son. It's my only son. And he is the one who I truly love. And we see this uh, wonderfully uh, in the Gospels. Uh, turn with me for a moment to look at a couple of short verses in John's uh, Gospel. And let's take, for example, John chapter 3, verse 34. John 3, verse 34.
John the Baptist is speaking here. John 3.34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit to him by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 20. John 5, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Turn forward to John 17. John 17, verse 24. In that great prayer that I quoted a few minutes ago, John 17, verse 24. He closes his prayer like this. Father, notice the loving language. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see how John, who was on this mountain and who witnessed the baptism, and who was in the upper room with Christ, and after many years of reflection, when he writes his gospel, his gospel is so different than the other three, and he speaks so clearly, God must have given him such an exalted mind to understand this relationship between these two members of the Trinity, because he speaks so clearly of it, and he quotes Christ's words from memory. He remembers what Christ has said, that Christ, this relationship flowed from the lips of Christ, and Christ was always and bubbling forth in his words of this loving union that he had with his father that the Jews couldn't see. It was hidden in the secret place between Christ and his father. And he spoke so clearly, with so much confidence and assurance, that this person loves me. The father loves the son, and has given all things to the son. And he shows him all that he does, and he loved him before the foundation of the world. And this is what the Father is revealing on our mountain here. This is what he wants to tell Christ, and he wants the disciples to hear. And let there be no doubt, with all of the prophets and all of the different opinions about who Christ is, some say he's Jeremiah, some say that he's Elijah, some say that he's one of the prophets, some say that he's a good teacher. Some say today many things about Christ about what he supports and what he doesn't support and who he is. That he loves everyone. That his love is easy. That his love is diluted. That it doesn't discriminate between sin and holiness. It doesn't discriminate between the saved and the lost. It's, he accepts all worship as long as it's sincere. He accepts all prayers as long as they say Father at the beginning and in Jesus' name at the end. There's lots of opinions that men have. Millions of opinions today about what Christ is like. We all have our opinions, but there is only one Son. There is only one only begotten Son. And He is the one who is righteous and pure and just and who brings all judgment, who is full of all grace, and He saves sinners and He condemns other sinners. And it is Him that the Father loves we're giving an insight here into who this man really is. 
that from all eternity he dwells in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18. He lies in the bosom of the Father. And he is the exact image of the Father. The Father begets the Son. And what is begotten is exactly the same as the Father. Just as your children look like you. They're not exactly the same as you. But Christ is exactly the same as his Father. The Son from all eternity, begotten by the Father in an eternal union and fellowship and communion and conversation in rapture of joy in perfect mind and word and in intense infinite immeasurable love to each other in an eternal marriage and father-son relationship that fills them both with perfection and satisfaction he is my beloved son the one in whom I love the one who is all my pleasure, for that is who the Son is. The Son is the Father's pleasure. If we want to know what God likes and what he delights in, and what fills his eternal spirit with eternal satisfaction, it is this person, Son. That is what is a, a big deal to God. That is his favourite thing. I can ask you, what do you like? What do you like to do? What do you enjoy? What are your hobbies? Do you enjoy your work? Um, do you enjoy doing these things with your family? What do you like to do? And the world is obsessed today. The modern Western world especially, obsessed and dominated and polluted by its recreation. And we all have so many things that we like to do. And then we claim that we're like God, but God's most blessed and satisfying thing is to look at his son, to love his son, to converse with his son, and to behold his glory and beauty, and for him to say, you are just like me, and for them to embrace each other eternally. They're like this. He holds the son to his chest, and he holds him tight, and he has said eternally, I love you, you are perfect, and all that you do pleases me. So if the world wants to please God, it has to, it has to do what the Son does. If the world wants to please and glorify and worship the Father, it, it can't get through the one who is lying on his bosom. It needs to enjoy the same thing that the Father enjoys. You know our catechism. Question one, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So there you are. This is the one coming on the mountain who enjoys him forever. And the son enjoys the father forever. So if we want to be saved, if we want to grow in Christ, if we want to be properly prepared for heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, we have to learn now to have that as our greatest enjoyment. He loves him for who he is, but he also loves him for what he is about to do. And that's the second reason that he loves him. Yes, he says, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But he loves him also because of something extra. It's enough to love him for who he is. In that eternal trinity, they didn't need to move. 
They didn't need to create a world. They didn't need to create Adam and Eve. They didn't need to create the sun, the moon, and the stars. They were there, and they didn't need anything. But there's another reason that the Father loves the Son. It's because of what he does in salvation. And that comes out in our, in our passages as we've as we looked at them. Um, in Luke's account that we looked at for two weeks, they spoke to Christ on the mountain about his decease, about his death. That's why he's up there. I must suffer. They speak to him about that suffering. That death for his people. That decease, that exodus that he will accomplish. The conversation on this mountain was about death and sacrifice. And that is not happening to the Father. That is the reason he loves the Son more, if we can say such a thing. It's because of that. And we see it in our passage, verse 9. When they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So there's an insight into Jesus' mind as he walked down the mountain. He went up thinking about what he must suffer. He spoke to Moses and Elijah about what he must suffer. And when he came down, though the disciples will not perceive what he's telling them in his mind, he is absolutely certain, I will suffer and die the penalty for all sin, and I will be risen from the dead. And it's the Father that's looking at him and saying, I am pleased with what you are about to do. So yes, he's pleased with the Son's glory and perfection, but he's also pleased with the mission that the Son is doing. We read from Matthew 3 that the Father said the same thing at the baptism. When Christ left his private life, his working family life, Christ was a working family man. He was basically the dad in his family. His earthly father had died, and Christ was in charge of that house and had to provide for that house. And he worked and provided for that house for 30 years. When he was 30, he stopped. And as he became aware of that calling and the time to step aside from it, he went to John to be baptized and anointed as Messiah. And that anointing was not just to bless him, it was to prepare him to be a sacrifice. And when John baptized him, the father said, I am well pleased with you. The same words. The reason he's well pleased with them, and think of this, Christian, the reason he's well pleased with them, is because Christ at that point had lived for 30 years and had not sinned. Everyone else sins constantly, stream of sin. Not Christ. 30 years he had lived without sinning. As a child, as a young man, as a mature man, in his conversations, in his relationships, in his work, in his sleep, in his thought life, in his responding to people constantly, all the business transactions that he had, people who complained about things he was saying or work that he had done, when he had to respond from God and, and, and not um, indulge himself in sin or countenance sin, and he had to say a gracious word that he would not take part in this as a child or as a young man, and people would say, what's wrong with you? 
and they didn't understand what he was saying, and all these reactions he didn't say. Every word he ever spoke was not only not very wrong, but it was exactly the holy, righteous requirements of God. It's not that his speech was okay, it's that his speech was excellent, and always appropriate, and always right, and always logical. You see how impossible this is for us sick sinners, that even this morning, even today, we have broken this. Think about your Savior, that he doesn't break this. No wonder the Father says to him, at his baptism, and on this mountain, in you I am well pleased. You have fulfilled this. You are fulfilling this, and you are fulfilling the law. Paul says that Christ came to fulfill the law and to become a curse for our sin. But he fulfilled the law. The law is this maze of wonderful behaviors and thoughts and the life that God wills that man would have. And Christ pours himself into that maze and fills it with his spirit, every nook and cranny, and there's no empty space. He is our lamb without blemish, a holy, harmless, undefiled lamb. No wonder God is pleased that he is fulfilling that on my behalf and your behalf, if we are Christians. That he can die, and at the moment of his death, that can be transferred to you. And that happened in your life. In the 20th century, or if you've been saved since the 20th century. But at some point in your life, a transaction was done that righteousness and perfect morality was transacted digitally to your account. And it came from here, it came from the life that Christ lived in Nazareth and his ministry. What a wonderful thing. In him I am well pleased, the Father says. But that's not all his work, and you know that, don't you, friends? Can we say in some way that that's the straightforward part of his work? To obey his Father who he loves? The other thing is awful. That he's going up this hill troubled about infinite eternal judgment for the Christian's sin. All of those lives, all of those sinful lives of men and women being stacked together and being built together before God's law and it's built up as a, as a sack of disobedience, a mountain of disobedience and imperfection and willful sin and all these things and God looks at it and his beauty and glory and holiness looks at it without mercy for it must be paid for his name and his justice must be glorified and he wouldn't just throw the sack to the side this sack must be dealt with by the Father and Christ begins to see it and it's weighing on him and the Father says he's pleased because on this mountain, Christ bows before this immense, infinite judgment that reaches and pierces through the sky and goes on and on and on into the very nature of God. This immense judgment, this sword that we're told in the prophets, must pierce him. 
and he looks out on that hill with three sleeping disciples and he says, I am willing to thrust it through me. I am willing to die on their behalf. I am willing to bear it. To do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God, that art. And that most holy law of thine I have within my heart. That is what he sees, and he does the impossible. He hooks himself and commits himself, fully recognizing what's there, and he says, I will do this. And then, after that prayer, no wonder the Father comes and says, I am pleased with you. Friends, just know and try and enter in in your own mind, in your own prayers, and as you think from week to week about your Christian life. That Christianity is not only what does the Bible say I must do, and how should I build my life, and what is right to do here. That is part of Christianity. That is the work and effect of Christianity. But your, your thought and prayer life must some way enter in to this, what Jesus Christ has done for you. Enter into it and think upon it. What does, why does God speak so strongly about his love for Christ's dreams? Why does the Bible say that it pleased the Father, it pleased the Lord to crush him? How can it please him to crush him when he loves him? It pleases him because not only was Christ willing to die, but he was willing to die to save us. God's pleasure is not only in a son, but the son dying for all of these people. He says, this is my loved son in whom I please, because this is the captain on a mission to save all of us. And that's what God wants. He wants people to be saved. He wants us to be reconciled to him. And never did he love Christ more than when Christ was plunged into darkness on the tree and when he received the eternal judgment of God and he said my God, my God why have you forsaken me yes the father is forsaking and cursing the son for a reason but we are wrong to think that that meant at that moment that his love wasn't going out to him too because he never loved him more than at that moment because Christ was willing to give up his love and give up his nearness, and give up his family, and his father, in that eternal judgment on the cross. He was willing to give all that up, so that we would never be forsaken. So that we would receive that love. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That he took pleasure, and blessed his son, as the one who is greatly loved because the Son was willing to undergo all of that so that you and I can be loved. And the Father thinks that's beautiful. That's what they planned when he asked the Son before he made the world and he asked the Son, will you go and die for sinners? We need to save them and will you go? And the Son said yes. I will go and I will fulfill it all so that you and I will be glorified 
in their salvation. So you have a father, my dear brother and sister, and you have this Savior, this Son, who is beautiful and perfect, that God delights in from all eternity. And remember, as you look upon him on this hill, and as we follow him to the other hill, remember as you look at him, that he's doing this out of love for you as a sinner. And that that gives God the Father the greatest pleasure, that the Father took his own son. You would not give your son, probably, for me or for someone else here. A big thing to get your firstborn son. And to allow them to suffer for what other people have done. And yet, for us, that is exactly what God did. This is my beloved son from all eternity. This is my beloved son in his obedience and in him moving to this death on the cross for sinners. And then to us, a few brief words. This is my beloved son. What do we say? For when he thunders from this mountain and says these words, they're not only to Christ, and we could even argue they're not even mainly for Christ. He doesn't say, you are my beloved son. It's almost like he's saying to the disciples, this is my beloved son. He's calling these disciples as witnesses. And he's saying, I'm pleased in him, and I love him, I have deep agape for him. It's eternal. It's all-engrossing, all-encompassing. It's intense. It never gets up. It doesn't waver. It's always focused on him. This is my beloved son, and I take great, infinite pleasure in him. Disciples, hear him. Hear him. And we'll see next week um, what it means to hear him as we take the rest of the passage. Uh, and close it up. But it's not just fear him, but the first call is to love him. This is my beloved son. This is why the universe exists. This is why the cross is there. This is my son. I am pleased in him. Are you? Peter, James, and John, and all of us, as we look on, Peter had affection for Christ. He wanted to protect Christ. John and James have affections for Christ. But it's not this kind of affection. Uh, Peter wants Peter wants to make tents for Moses and Elijah, along with Christ. He, he doesn't just want a tent for Christ, but he wants some other tents too. They are being shown here at this pinnacle of Christ's opposition. They are being shown here as they've left their nets and left their jobs and. And all the Jews have begun to turn against Christ and they've had to leave their synagogue. These men have basically been excommunicated from their synagogue. They're being told that the secret of the Christian life and the pinnacle we must all reach in our Christian life is that all, a lot of these props have to be let go. And they can still be there in our lives. We need to work. We need to have friendships. We need to have interests. It's okay if some of them are there. But they should not be uh, dominating and taking the same place as this. Uh, all God says here is, this is my son. And I take pleasure in him. And the challenge is to these three men. It does not satisfy you. Does that satisfy you, Peter? 
And Peter says, even if they all forsake you, I will not forsake you, Lord. I do love you in the same way as the Father does. I, I've seen these disciples. I've seen them argue, and I said, they may forsake you, and some of them, I think, probably will, but not me, Peter says. And we'll see next week, and as we go through and watch Peter, James, and John, all the way to Jerusalem, how contaminated their hearts are with pride and presumption, and how wrong they are at estimating themselves, as you and I are. We have wrong estimates of ourselves, probably even now. We may think, all else forsaken, not me. And uh, I have other things in my life, but Christ is the priority. But we see that it's not. When he says that to Christ, Christ turned him and said, Peter, Simon, you'll love me to the end, through death, through arrests, into the Roman prisons, you'll, you'll follow me, even unto death, Peter. A cock is going to crow in a few hours, and when it does, you will have denied me with both sentences. So we see here a Christian's heart, the weakness of a Christian's heart, compared to the glory of Christ's heart. We all think we wouldn't deny him. We all think that we're fairly good at loving and we do what the world does. The world thinks it's righteous enough to please God, that it doesn't break all of his law. That's what the world thinks. I'm a good person, the world says. And I'm not perfect, there's things I miss, but God thinks I'm a good person. But friends, I do that and you do that in the faith. We hide behind our justification in these things. And a lot of the time, we think we're doing pretty well. That it's others that fail. And we may not be perfect, but God's grace is wonderful. And we pay homage to his grace. We kind of do it hypocritically as though we value it. But a lot of the time, we're doing what's native to very human nature in us all. And that human nature says, I am righteous. I am righteous. And God cannot get all of me because there are parts of me that are righteous. And I don't deserve full condemnation. And I'm not going to say to another Christian that I'm righteous because I'm not supposed to say that. But me, my family, whatever. We are good. And no one has any right to say otherwise. That's what Peter said. Uh, he meant it. It was, a gen it was genuinely wrong. I will go all the way with you, Jesus. As we are saying now, and I say, I will go all the way, Lord. And perhaps you say too. I, my whole life, we will go all the way with you. And me, my friends, and my family, and our congregation, we are with you. And we will go all the way. We will witness for you. We will live for you. We will be obedient. We will conduct the law of God and worship in our lives, and we will honor you, Lord. And yet, a lot of it is just self-belief, because Peter meant it, friends. And believe me, Peter was stronger than you and me. Peter left his business, and his wife, and his children, to follow this man. He didn't leave his wife, you know what I mean by that. He, he was apart from his wife for a significant period of time. He did this. And he's stronger, probably, than all of us. And yet, 
how weak he was. And it just took a couple of providences to show how willing he was to say, I don't know this man and I'm not willing to put him first and I'm not going to put my neck on the line. When the father says, and I'm closing with this, when the father says, this is my son, I take pleasure in him. Peter, James, John, examine yourselves. Is this your greatest pleasure and do you love him in this way? We need to ask ourselves the same question. To ask ourselves and to examine ourselves, not to scorn and lash ourselves, but to grow. To examine ourselves today and to say, do I love the Son in this way? Do I love the Father in this way? Do I delight to be with them? Do I make time to be with them? And when choices come up between the Father and the Son and other things, and between the service of Christ, who died for me, and who bought me with his blood, and I'm not my own, I am not my own master and God, but I am a, a servant. I belong to this king. When, when options come up, am I really choosing this? Am I really putting him first? When the Father says, I love him, am I like the Father? Does that rise out of my heart and your heart? I love him because he is worthy and perfect and glorious and eternal. And he stimulates my soul. And he went to the tree to bear my sins. And he sweat blood for me. And he had thorns pressed into his skull for me. And he was whipped and lashed for me. And he was broken and dislocated and nailed and he poured out his soul under the wrath of God so that my heart could receive eternal life and a seat at the table of the Lord in heaven. If he's done all that for me, what is there that I cannot give to him? My life should be 90% him. And 10% the rest. Because his life was 100% for me. So let that ring in our ears as we leave, my brothers and sisters. As you hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son. And I am pleased, or you say, this is my beloved Savior and brother. In him I am well pleased. May God grant that it would be so in all of our lives. Now let's